Our scripture reading uh, this morning is taken uh, from Romans uh, chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses uh, 1 to 8. So you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens uh, or in your bulletin. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd speak to us this morning through this beautiful passage of Scripture. Uh, Teach us not only the beauties of the gospel, but help us to see clearly uh, what it means for our lives each day. So visit us with your presence. Help us to hear the power of your voice here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, When I was uh, in uh, my undergraduate school, my undergraduate program, I went to a a small Christian college uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, at that point in my life, I was one of the weird kids that kind of actually knew what I wanted to do with my life, or at least I could narrow things down. Uh, I knew I either wanted to be a teacher or I wanted to go uh, in some capacity, capacity of ministry. So this school was uh, the perfect school for me to go to because really that was the only two majors they had. Pretty much everyone did either education uh, or they did uh, some sort of ministry uh, path. And I can remember uh, during my uh, uh, second half of my freshman year, uh, I, like all the other students, had to take a, a math prerequisite and a science prerequisite. And uh, I hated both of them. And uh, I felt really bad for the professors, though. One was named uh, Dr. Cleaver. I don't even remember the other guy's name. But I felt really bad for them because they had to teach math and they had to teach physics, some sort of science, to uh, a student body that, by and large, were not going into the math field or going into the physics field. So it was hard for them to keep the students motivated. And I, of course, was one of those unmotivated students. Because often I would sit in those classes and I would wonder, what is the point of all this? Am I going to really use this later in my life? So, so motivation was certainly an issue because I constantly asked myself, so what or why do I even need to understand this? Well, in many ways, uh, for, chap- for 11 chapters, Paul, the apostle, the writer of the book of Romans, has been outlining to all of us the the doctrinal superstructure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us, you'll know we've peered into the mysteries of God. uh, We've peered into the character of God. 
we have looked at his work of redemption throughout history. And then you come to chapter 12 and things change a little bit in Paul's letter. And all of it is based on the word, therefore, that we read at the very beginning of this chapter. And sometimes we kind of lose the effect of what's going on here. You have to think back to the to those first original hearers of this letter of Romans. And they didn't break it up piece by piece like we do in sermons. They would literally receive the letter and read it all in one sitting. So as they read these 11 chapters of, of incredible theology, they get to chapter 12 and they hear that word, therefore. And immediately their ears perk up because they recognize that things, the tone of this letter is about to change because what Paul is doing here is he is giving them and us the so what of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Essentially what he's saying is if all of this doctrine is true that we have looked at for, the le- for 11 chapters, then what does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for how we are supposed to live? Now, what I've learned is that there are two types of people out there in the world. There's the ethereal people and there's the really practical people, right? The ethereal people are happy to sit around and talk metaphysics and theology and doctrine and philosophy all day long. And they infuriate the practical people, right? Because the practical people only want to talk about things if they are useful, Something doesn't have a whole lot of value to a practical person unless it plays out very practically in their lives. What does it look like in real life? And what the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Romans is both. He gives us the doctrine, the theory, the theology, but then he asks us to consider what it looks like practically in the lives that we live in each day. Paul is eager to show us how all of this matters. What are the real life implications? And so as we look at this passage this morning, Paul is really starting a three, four chapter section on what this looks like in real life. And in our passage this morning, he he helps us to see what it looks like individually, what the implications are for us individually, and also what the implications are for us communally or corporately. So let's look first uh, at the individual implications by looking at verses 1 and 2. And what Paul says right off the bat is he says, I urge you or I, I beg you or I exhort you to present your bodies. Verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The Old Testament system, which, which Paul's hearers would have been very familiar with, uh, was an elaborate system of worship that was built around sacrifice. There, were, there, would be, there would be feasts, there would be festivals, but in everything there would be sacrifices. So in the Old Testament mind, sacrifice would be equivalent to the idea of worship. Sacrifice was worship. In their day, uh, to worship God meant that you would, you would give the, the firsts or the first fruits of your crop uh, and, and the firsts or the first fruits of your livestock. You would give those things back to God with the understanding that they were his, 
that they were his property and worship was rightly giving back to him what was his. And that was their idea of sacrifice. That was their idea of worship. And in some ways, it is a little different today, at least how we think about worship today. If you ask the average church goer what worship is, they're going to tell you, well, it's a service that I go to on Sunday. And if the music's good and the preacher is kind of okay, then I will leave feeling filled up and I will have all the good emotions and I will leave having worshiped God. But what Paul is saying here is that worship is much more deeper than what we think. He's actually saying that worship is still about sacrifice. Now, now we don't offer up crops when we come to worship here on Sunday morning, and we certainly don't offer livestock when we come to worship here on a Sunday morning. But what Paul is saying is that we, each one of us, are the sacrifice. We are the sacrifice. And Paul is saying is that is the most reasonable thing that we could ever consider. Because what he's saying here is that our lives, he's reminding us of what we've just talked about, our lives have been bought back. They have been redeemed from sin and death. And that's what Christ's sacrifice has made possible for each one of us. But one of the mistaken things that we can fall into is thinking that now Christ has redeemed us or brought us back, then we are good now. We are on our own. Our life is our own. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying essentially that our lives, because of redemption, our lives now belong to God. In fact, in another place, Paul says, before we were slaves to to sin, sin was our master, But he's saying now we are slaves to righteousness, meaning righteousness or God himself is our master. Our lives belong to God. And so now worship becomes giving back to God what is rightly his, giving back to God our lives. We are no longer our master. Instead, God is. Now, if, if you know me at all, you know I love my, my electronic calendar. In fact, it's the only thing that keeps uh, my life sane is my, is my electronic calendar. And what I, what I love about it is I, I've, I've, I've worked very hard on it. I keep it color-coded, and, and certain parts of my life are in different colors than other, and I can manipulate and do all sorts of things. And what I like about it is it, is it gives me nice little compartments that I can slot in the pieces of my life. Everything has its place. Maybe you use one of these as well. And uh, I, I, so because of that, it leaves me, it gives me the opportunity to live a very organized and sometimes compartmentalized sort of life. And that's fine. It's good. It's a helpful tool for me. But one of the things we have to be careful of is that we don't do the very same thing when it comes to our relationship with God. You see, the scriptures are very clear that we are certainly to give God our firsts. We're to give him the firsts of our money, the firsts of our time, the firsts of our our talents and giftedness. But what Paul is doing here in this section is that he's raising the bar, as it were. He's saying that all of it, all of our lives is God's. And to sacrifice it to him or to give it to him is 
the essence of this thing called worship. He's effectively saying we can't compartmentalize God. We can't only give God this one piece of our lives or, or maybe this one time slot in our lives. We can't even leave a worship service on Sunday and say, I've worshiped God this week. I'm good to go and move on with the rest of our lives. What Paul is saying here is all of it belongs to him. All of our lives belongs to him. Worship is giving everything that we have back to God as a sacrifice. And friends, when we begin to do this, we really start to look different. In a culture that is, uh, we all know this, in a culture that is committed to worshiping self, of living for one's self-interest, one's self-advancement, God calls us to do something radically different. To orient our lives not on selfish concerns, but instead to orient our lives on God's will and God's purposes for us. This is really what Paul begins to tease out in verse 2 when he says this. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These, these two words, conformed and transformed, uh, have been the subject of great debate uh, for so many years in Christian circles because it's very hard to translate them from the original Greek uh, to English. We don't really have in English the fullness of what these words mean, but we can still get the concept that Paul is really trying to tease out in this section. He's essentially saying, don't fall into the fashions of this world. He's saying, don't, don't become like a chameleon in some ways that, that blends into the patterns and the worldviews that are around us. You see, Paul knew human nature really well. He knew that we are imitators by nature. Meaning, whatever we tend to, to set our mind on or to spend our money on uh, or to even give our time to, those things have a way, a molding function, a way of shaping our hearts. So what Paul does is he uses kind of fashion-y terms when it comes to this section. And, and as I thought about that, that this week, I thought about a conversation my wife and I had right before we, we, um, uh, we were really just becoming friends at that point. And uh, we, were, we were just getting to know each other. And uh, I can remember thinking, I, I, I want to ask her this question, but I don't, I don't know if this is kind of out of bounds. Uh, so I did it anyway. And, and I looked at her and I said, can you tell me why is it that you always wear black? You see, one of the things I noticed about my wife is that she always tries, to, she was always dressing in black. And I really wondered about it because I'm sitting here wondering, does she have some sort of death fixation or something that she wears black all the time? So I finally got the courage to, to ask her, why, why do you wear black all the time? And what she told me that where she was from in, in northern New Jersey and New York Everyone wore black all the time. It's what that culture wore. It was the environment in which she was raised in. So it felt perfectly normal and reasonable for her to wear lots of black, even though it was incredibly strange to me. You see, I thought about that this week because what Paul is saying here is there is a great temptation in all of us to fit in with the fashions of the world that is around us. 
we can become locked into the, the selfishness and the materialism that we are in every single day. We have a propensity to become locked into one particular political viewpoint or cultural value. In fact, a great assessment tool that we should all ask ourselves is this. If you agree entirely, I mean entirely, with all of your friends on everything, then perhaps you've been caught into the echo chamber that you have fashioned around the world in which you live. If you are in absolute full agreement with one political party or one particular social movement, then perhaps you have fashioned yourself. Meaning, if there isn't something that is existentially different about you than the world that is around you, then perhaps you've become conformed to the pattern of this world. You see, what Paul says instead is that we need to renew our minds. Instead of conforming them to the world, we need to conform them to God's word and and God's way. We need to, to soak ourselves in this story of redemption, saturate ourselves in the fullness of the gospel, because the more we drink fully of that, the more it will transform us. But the more we neglect it, the more we will naturally pattern ourselves around the things of this world. So what Paul does here is he he tackles the individual so what's of the gospel, but then he moves on to kind of a corporate or communal element or implications of the gospel in verse 3. Because what he's arguing is is it isn't just about us and God, but it also matters in terms of how we relate to one another, and it especially matters how we relate to one another within the context of the church, within the context of this community of faith. Now, if you remember, Paul, for a couple chapters before this, has tackled the most divisive element that was present in the Roman church, and that was the element of the Jewish and Gentile divide. But in this section, he goes on to tackle other elements of diversity. But what he does is he establishes a beautiful oneness in the church of God and the beautiful diversity that exists in God's community as well. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. See, essentially what he's saying is that all followers of Jesus Christ are a part of one body, not just the ones in this local church body, but all the followers of Jesus Christ throughout time and in history, all throughout our city and neighborhoods, all of us are one body. And the head of that body is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And essentially what he does is he binds us to one another, adopting us into the family of God. And it is that shared experience that ought to bind together the community of faith. As you all know, it it is shared experience that often binds people together And you could be remarkably different from the person that is sitting next to you right now, 
But what ought to be the most powerful experience of your life ought to be the same most powerful experience in their lives as well. And that is a saving encounter with the living God. And what Paul's saying is it doesn't mean that there are not differences among us. And what he does is he outlines all these differences in giftedness. He talks about prophecy and service, teaching gifts and exhortation, generosity and mercy. And he's establishing that there is a tremendous diversity within God's church. And that 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 diversity in any other institution would, would threaten the very foundation of it. But if Jesus Christ is the head of this body then we celebrate the diversity and the giftedness of others while we center ourselves and celebrate the union that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about it, no other human institution is like this, right? Almost every other institution that we participate in, we we self-select ourselves into, meaning Uh, Every other institution in life, we basically get to surround ourselves with people that we like and people that are just like us. But the church alone is the community of faith in which God brings people together that we wouldn't normally hang out with. He brings people together with a diverse tapestry of gifts and talents and backgrounds and shared experience. And when we as a community of faith with all our diversity can find our unity in Jesus Christ, then we become a powerful demonstration to the world of the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is there's individual implications of this gospel and communal implications of this gospel, but we can't forget what the fuel is for all of this. We can't forget what the motivation is for all of this practical behavior because we often fall into thinking that the motivation is either fear or guilt. But what Paul reminds us is the only true motivation for all of this is gratitude. The only true motivation for all of this is gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why this this chapter 12 comes after a lengthy discussion about the gospel for 11 chapters. But even if you look in the section, Paul peppers the section with the message of the gospel as well. He talks about the mercies of God in verse 1 and the grace of God in verses 3 and 6. But I think the key verse that Paul uses here to talk about motivation comes in verse 3 where it says this, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, see, Paul's advocating here for us to, to think about ourselves in a sobering way. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means is this. He means, first of all, that we are all tempted, and we know this to be true, we are all tempted to think too highly of ourselves. 
That's not hard for us. We are all tempted to do that. And the gospel has something to say to that. Because the gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine or even realize. That's sobering, isn't it? It tells us that, that everything that we do is tainted by sin. It tells us that we are hopeless to merit or to earn our way back to God who we have horribly offended. And what the gospel tells us, that all that we have in Jesus Christ is not something we earned, but something that has been given to us by God's grace and mercy that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel has an answer to us if we are tempted to think too highly of ourselves. But the gospel also has something to say about thinking too lowly of ourselves as well. See, the gospel certainly tells us that we are sinful and corrupt and that we live within the consequences of the mess of our sin that we cause each day. But what the gospel also tells us that in Christ, sin no longer has the final word in our lives. Instead, the gospel tells us that we have been chosen and adopted as sons and daughters of God. It tells us that, that our identity before God isn't rooted in our performance before him. Instead, it is rooted in Christ's performance on our behalf. It tells us that we are loved beyond what we can measure or beyond what we can imagine. And that this, friends, is who we are. And that the more we conform our lives to this gospel, the more we will find the motivation to live the way God desires for us to live. And so, friends, in view of God's mercy and his great love for you, offer your lives as a sacrifice to him. Worship him in really risky and costly ways, knowing that our heart often uh, really works against doing things in risky and costly ways. Instead, recognize that that's the kind of worship that God calls us to give to him. Sacrifice your own will and desires and instead live for his glory, live for his fame. And when you do, know that you will be truly worshiping him. Let's pray.